so here we are. We're back in our study here in the book of Acts. And our, our message today, uh, I've entitled it The First Christian Martyr. And I, and I specifically put Christian in there because uh, there were people uh, prior to the, the time of Jesus and the, uh, you know, the, the new covenant and, and so forth. There were people back in the, the history of the nation of Israel who would, would qualify as martyrs. But, but Stephen, as we read here this morning, Stephen was actually the first one in the church era to... Uh, actually be martyred or to, to be uh, put to death for his faith. So, so that's our, our primary topic today. But l- let me just remind you that as, as we're making our way through Acts, one of the things that we're focusing on, and, and I want to kind of just keep reminding us of this so we don't get lost in the details, but we're focusing on uh, how the gospel advanced and the church expanded uh, in those early days of its history, because that is a a model. It's a it's a picture for us of of how this happens, and so we we want to kind of keep that um, before our minds as as we go through. So, uh, up until this point, what we've seen is that the expansion uh, of the church has been largely through the preaching and teaching ministry of the apostles and the living out of the new life in Christ by the believers. Uh, What we've also seen but haven't yet uh, considered closely is this component of suffering. And so we're we're going to focus in on that today. These believers were willing to, uh, to endure suffering in order to see the gospel advance. They, they understood that that was really part of the way um, the message would go forward. So up until this point in the story, uh, we've seen that they were threatened. We've seen that they were actually even put in jail. And we also saw that uh, some of them were beaten for uh, refusing to comply with the order from the authorities to cease uh, preaching Jesus as the Messiah. But as we come now to the story of Stephen and we see his uh, execution, uh, what we see here is that things have gone to a whole new level of danger for the disciples. Now, of course, this extreme um, opposition to the gospel which was rooted there in the hearts of these men who were opposed to it. But we know also, uh, we, we, we can be sure that the, the devil was behind this. Uh, of course, the, the ultimate desire of the enemy is to prevent things from going any further. So we'll threaten them. Well, that didn't work. We'll put them in jail. Well, that didn't work. We'll beat them. Well, that didn't work. Okay, now we're gonna kill them. But what we're gonna find out is that that didn't work either. And what we see here is that part of their success in advancing the gospel was in their very willingness to suffer. You know, it's like Paul the Apostle actually would say himself later on in life when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and he had this deep passion to go and to, he wanted to just have that one opportunity to clearly 
proclaim the gospel to, to the Jews, which of course he was a Jew. So he's like, my people, I want to get the gospel to them. And as he's ready to go to Jerusalem, everybody around him knows this isn't going to be good. You're going to, you know, this could be disastrous. Don't go. And, and Paul says to them, why are you, why are you trying to persuade me? He said, don't you realize that I'm not only ready to suffer for Christ in Jerusalem, I'm ready to die if that's what it takes. That was the attitude of the early believers. And it was that kind of attitude that, like I'm saying, it, it, cause the gospel to advance. Now, the whole idea of suffering as something to be valued or something to be embraced is so countercultural to us, especially as Westerners, especially, you know, people in the Western world. We have uh, made it an art form to uh, free ourselves as much as we possibly can from any uh, suffering. We, you know, comfort and ease is, is really what, what we're primarily all about as, as a culture. I, I was listening to a report this week where um, you're talking about some different views educationally uh, between like the Asian cultures and uh, American or, or Western cultures. And in, in the Asian culture, the kind of the objective of education is... Uh, knowledge and application and production. And talking about the, the objective of education nowadays in Western culture is happiness. So that's, that's the big thing. You know, we want to, you know, we want to help everybody be happy. So, so the idea of, of suffering is totally countercultural. And even to the point where we as Christians have a hard time accepting it, and we will often do anything we can to avoid it ourselves. But uh, this was not the case with the first Christians, and it shouldn't be the case with us. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, a writer, an author, a, a, a scholar, um, he, he wrote this, and it, it's applicable here. He said this. He said, uh, we should not be surprised, though many in the church down through the years would be very surprised to hear this, that the early Christians understood their vocation as Jesus's followers to include as a central and load-bearing element their own suffering, misunderstanding, and likely death. The suffering of Jesus's followers is actually like Jesus's own suffering not just the inevitable accompaniment to the accomplishing of the divine purpose, listen, but actually itself part of the means by which the purpose is fulfilled. In other words, what N.T. Wright is saying is that uh, these Christians understood from the beginning, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, and know that in order to do that, some are gonna suffer and die. That was the message that Jesus gave, and that was the message they understood, and that's the reality that they went out and experienced, beginning here with Stephen. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to look, first of all, just for a moment at Stephen and just kind of refresh ourselves on, on who this person 
is. So we, we met him uh, last week in the story. Remember, there was a situation where um, there was uh, perceived discrimination happening in the distribution of, of the goods to the widows. Uh, the, the Hellenistic, the Greek uh, background Jews felt like they were being uh, discriminated against by, by the Hebrew background Jews. And so uh, the apostles were getting sucked into this and they said, no, no, we can't do that. We, you know, it's not right for us to, to leave the ministry of the word and serve tables. So you, find, you know, choose from among you seven men and appoint them over this. And so Stephen is the first one mentioned. So he was the first one that was chosen. And so what we learn about Stephen as we look at that and then put together the other pieces from what we read today is first of all, Stephen was simply a servant. He was a servant in the church in Jerusalem. Now, maybe you remember I talked about um, deacons last week. I talked a little bit about how this thing that occurred where they needed to find these seven men to oversee this ministry, how this was probably the, the beginning of what would later become the role of the deacon in the church. We're not sure that it was, but it, but it kind of seems like it was. Um, so mentioned how Paul later in writing to Timothy, he talked about the two primary roles of the overseers, the, the ones who had spiritual oversight, uh, the deacons, the one who took care of the practical aspect of the ministry. Uh, the, the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which simply means servant. That's, that's the actual meaning of the word. So Stephen was first and foremost a servant. He was a, a person who was just there to serve. And he's one of the guys that's chosen to serve in this daily distribution. He's passing out food. He's helping out with you know, maybe clothing and things like that. He's part of this, this distribution thing. So that's what he was. Well, I said first and foremost, but that's not actually the case. In the service of the church, he was a servant. But secondly, what we see about Stephen is that he was a prophet. Now, one of the things that I want us to understand, because I think we have a hard time with this sometimes, I, I think that we we tend to think that the people who are gonna be prophetic or the people who are gonna be you know, preaching the gospel effectively or the people that are gonna be teaching the word, uh, well, of course, those are the people who are the pastors. But what we see with Stephen is he wasn't a pastor. He was just a servant in the church, but he was also a prophet in as much as we read about him that uh, through him, what does it say that there were great wonders and signs that were done among the people? So that, that's the prophetic thing. So here's this guy. He's, you know, <laughs> sometimes you'd find him there passing out the loaves of bread. And other times you find him out in the community and God's using him to perform these powerful, miraculous deeds. So he's a servant. He's a prophet. He's an evangelist. In other words, he's a person who preaches the gospel. That's what got him into the trouble in the first place because he was preaching the gospel. He was telling people Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. The, the, they took what Stephen said and they distorted it, but no doubt Stephen was saying that the, the temple, 
as we've known it and its ministry is ended because Jesus came and fulfilled it all. The laws we've known it, uh, that's ended because Jesus came and fulfilled it all. So it was probably in the synagogue of the freed men that Stephen had made these remarks. And so, of course, this is what got him into trouble. But we see that, that he was an evangelist. He was a person who was telling other people about Jesus. And he was also a preacher. Now, I encourage you later today to read uh, the section of scripture between the two passages that we read today. So you get the, the full picture. But what we have there is Stephen, remember he's brought before the high priest. They make these accusations. They say, are these things so? And he opens his mouth and then we skipped over all of that except the very end. But there he begins to basically preach to them about their, their whole history. He starts with Abraham, he highlights Moses, uh, or he starts with Abraham, he talks about Joseph, then he goes to Moses, then he talks about David, and, and he ultimately ends at Jesus and basically says, Jesus is the, the Messiah and you've rejected him. And that's what caused them to kill him. But he's a preacher, he knows the word of God. It's amazing, I mean, he just walks them through their entire history. So we see that about him. But here's the thing, that I wanted to say in regard to what he was first and foremost. What he was first and foremost was a simple Christian. He was a Christian. He was a believer. And before any of these other things that we know about him, serving or the prophetic thing or the evangelist or the preacher thing, what we find is that he was one of those men that was chosen. Why? Because he had a good reputation and he was full of the spirit and wisdom. He was just a solid Christian man. That's what he was. And so as we, as we think about him as, as the first martyr, I want us to understand that he was, he was just, in, in one sense, he was a simple Christian, but he had these other giftings and things as well. And one of the reasons I'm saying that is because from that day to this day, you know, millions millions of people have been martyred for their faith. Millions. We hardly know any of them. Why? Well, they were just simple Christians. They didn't hold a high position anywhere. They didn't write a book. They didn't lead a ministry uh, necessarily, but they loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. They served Jesus. And in the end, for you know whatever the circumstances were, they died for their faith. And so the, the, the underlying factor with Stephen, let's never forget, is that he was a simple Christian. So Stephen was the first martyr, but he is certainly not the last martyr. Now, of course, we have the story of his martyrdom here. As we go on in the book of Acts, we find next that James is martyred. Put to death for his faith, James. James is the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, uh, the close friend of Peter. Remember when we read in the gospel, so often it's Peter, James, and John were with Jesus. James is the next one. He's executed by Herod. Uh, we know from Paul's own writing that he would himself be uh, martyred. He would be put to death at a certain point. He uh, 
understood maybe the sentence was already passed when he wrote to Timothy in the second letter because he says, the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Um, and he recognizes that it, it's time for him. And history tells us that he was, uh, he was beheaded by Nero. And, and then, of course, Peter. Uh, we don't know exactly how Peter died. A tradition says that he was crucified upside down. We don't know if that really happened or not. But we know that, that Peter was martyred because Jesus told him in John chapter 21 that there would come a day when, where he used to kind of go out and do what he wanted. There would, there would come a day when he would be bound and he would take, be taken away to someplace he didn't want to go. And John tells us specifically that... Um, that that was a reference to the way that Peter would glorify God through his death. So we have these others that, that followed them in the biblical record as martyrs. But as we just go through history, like I said, the vast majority, you know, the estimation is that in the first couple of centuries, six million Christians died for their faith. That's, that's an estimation. Some people dispute it, say it wasn't that. Some people say it actually could have been more. We don't know for sure. But, but multitudes of believers died. But occasionally we, we have a name. Uh, we have a little bit of background. So in 155 AD, just, you know, shortly after the apostolic period, uh, we have the story of the, the martyrdom of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the, he was the bishop of Smyrna. And he was taken, he was burned at the stake. Um, there, there's plenty uh, of references uh, after that as well. But jumping all the way out to 1555, um, there was the martyrdom of, of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley uh, in Oxford, England. Um, fast forwarding to 1934, John and Betty Stamm, uh, they were a young couple that were martyred in China. 1956, uh, names that some of us might be familiar with, especially Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, uh, Roger Yudarian, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming. They were the ones that, that died there uh, attempting to bring the gospel to the Alcas in uh, Ecuador. Um, but fast forward to 2015. 21 Egyptian Christians beheaded by ISIS. Many of us saw on the internet and in the news, we saw gruesome images of that very thing happening. Um, 2016, uh, maybe you remember this, Father Jacques Hamel uh, murdered while performing a service early in the morning at his parish church in France. Uh, throat slit, attempted to behead him. Um, and then even uh, more recently, 2017, right at the end of the year, Ian Squire, uh, who was a, a British missionary and who was shot dead in, um, in Nigeria. Now, so lest we think that this stuff is something from 2,000 years ago, we need to realize this stuff, it, it still happens today. Uh, as a matter of fact, according to Open Doors, which is a, a ministry that deals with, largely with you know, the persecuted church, uh, according to Open Doors 2018 World Watch List, 3,066 people were killed in 2017 specifically for their faith. They died as martyrs. They died, they were put to death in some way because of their 
Christian faith. So this is a reality still today. But again, hear me on this, persecution, even martyrdom, is a part of the mission of advancing the gospel. You see, the, the reason we have such a problem with that is because we so often are just thinking about the here and the now. We're thinking about the temporary. In some ways, we've even sort of lost sight of eternity and of heaven. And, and that that is the goal is ultimately to be with the Lord, not to settle down here on earth. The early Christians understood that. You remember in Hebrews, it tells us that they lived as pilgrims and sojourners because they were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. They, they, you know, they, they weren't looking to settle down in Rome and just live happily ever after. They were looking for that, that city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. So it is a fact of history that persecution and martyrdom have done more to advance the gospel than to stop its progress. That is a fact of history. Tertullian, who was an early church leader um, in the second century, his words have proven to be true over and over again. He said, and this is a paraphrase, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He, he understood that. And what I want us to see, because I, all of those names I just mentioned, I want to walk through them once again, but I want to tell you a little bit more about their story. And, and what we're going to see is this. What looks like a defeat is a victory, actually. And, and right here, beginning with Stephen. Now, this looks like a defeat, doesn't it? I mean, you think, look at this guy. I mean, he's a servant in the church. He is uh, a prophet. He is an evangelist. He is a preacher. This is the guy that you want to stick around these are the people, you know, like, no, Lord, we want this guy. We need this guy more on earth than you need him in heaven. That, that's the way we would kind of look at that, right? But, you know, God has a different uh, way of doing things. And what oftentimes looks like a defeat from our standpoint is actually a great victory. And Stephen is a case in point because, remember, as we're reading the passage here this morning, there's reference to this one person who was watching or taking care of the clothing of those, the garments of those who were putting Stephen to death. And what was his name? His name was Saul. Now, Saul, for those of you that don't know, will later be known in history as the Apostle Paul. But at this stage, he's complicit in the death of Stephen. He's like, hey, you're gonna stone this guy? Great, here, let me hold your coat. Here, yeah, give me, give me your coat. Yeah, give me, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that. You guys, you know, throw a stone for me. That was what was happening here. Saul, as we see as we go into the next chapter, he was enraged in, in his hostility toward the believers. And he goes on a rampage and he's persecuting them. But listen, Stephen is the guy who God uses through his, this whole event Stephen is the guy that God uses to plant the seed of the gospel deep in Saul's heart to where he can't escape it. He can't get rid of it. It's like in Stephen, Saul meets his match. Saul was the brilliant student of Gamaliel. Saul was the, the zealot. And here's Stephen. Oh, he's brilliant too. He just walked him through their entire history as a nation. And he's a bold preacher. He shows them that they're guilty before God of, of rejecting the Messiah. 
But not only that, Stephen, he is forgiving his enemies and he's got this unbelievable composure and peace upon him even while he's dying. This undoubtedly haunted Saul and this was the seed that would, would begin the process that would lead to his conversion. Because when Saul is finally converted, Jesus says this, thing, this one thing to him. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats, which is an indicator that he had been fighting against the truth and trying to avoid uh, submitting to it. And that truth, I believe, was clearly planted in Saul of Tarsus on this day. And so what we see in each one of these situations is that what seemed like a defeat was actually a victory. What seemed like maybe the gospel was going to be uh, halted in its progress actually led to its greater progress. So fast forward to 1555, uh, Latimer and Ridley. This is during the time of the English Reformation. And they are condemned by uh, the queen at the time, and they are sentenced to death, and they are burned at the stake in the city of Oxford on Broad Street. You can go there today. I've been there many, many times. There's, the, there's actually a monument to them. Nobody even knows what it is today. It's a bunch of, you know, usually a bunch of trash around it and stuff. Uh, but it's actually right outside of a church, uh, the doors of a church as well. But this is the place where these two men... Uh, Latimer was the older, Ridley was the younger. Uh, these two reformers, this is where they were burned at the stake. But while the, the, the fires were being kindled, Latimer said this to Ridley. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And you know, that was a prophetic word, I think, because 500 years later, the, the, the candle is still not put out. Even though there have been numerous efforts to snuff it out, uh, the gospel still um, is, is shining in England today. And then we have John and Betty Stem. I made a reference to them. John and Betty Stem, if you ever read the story, and by the way, uh, all of these people that I'm referring to today, we have just, there's great books, you know, that talk about their histories. Sometimes it's a, you know, single volume about their lives, or maybe they're, it's a compilation of different stories. Um, but we actually have a number of books in the bookstore that'll tell you the, the, the details of these stories. But John and Betty Stam were a young couple uh, who felt a great burden to go to China in the early part of the 20th century. And so, you know, they were, they were a brilliant couple. They were a young married couple. They, uh, they prepared. They did all of their uh, language and, you know, all of this stuff. And they go to China. And before they can ever really even launch into their ministry, uh, the communist uprising, they are just seemingly randomly taken and they're beheaded. It's a horrible story, really, in many ways. There's a little book, though, that's written about their lives called The Triumph of John and Betty Stamm. When Cheryl was 12 years old, she was telling me this yesterday, she was 12 years old, um, her dad was going somewhere, uh, you know, traveling somewhere around the world, and when he would go, she would always say, Dad, you know, bring me something back from, you know, wherever it is you're going. She wasn't, didn't remember where it was he was going at the time. But anyway, he 
went on the trip. He came back and he brought this book. And it was this book, The Triumph of John and Betty Stamm. Now she's 12 years old. And he says, oh, honey, this, I, I got you this book. I saw it and I, I want you to have it. This is one of my favorite books. And so she reads it. She's 12. She reads it. She's like, this is one of your favorite books. Dad, this is scary. Oh, no. Is the Lord telling me that I'm going to be a martyr? You know, what is going on here? Um, it, 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 you know, it's one of those stories where that's what you think at the end. You're just like, wait, th- this doesn't seem like it should have ended this way. But see, here's the thing. It didn't end that way. They were transported into glory, but not too many years later, when the communists, 1949, when the communists came to power, uh, all the missionaries and Westerners were expelled from China, and the Chinese Christians came under an intense persecution where they were deprived, where they were imprisoned, where they were put to death. And everybody thought that this was the end of Christianity in China. Oh, those Western missionaries. I've read, I've read stories of people that were there at the time who, when they were expelled, as far as they were concerned, it's over. Uh, you know, the gospel had its brief hour in China, and now it's, it's you know, going to be gone. There were approximately 600,000 Christians in China in 1949, at the time of the, the communist revolution. And this intense persecution with martyrdom ensued, which has gone on still to some degree to this very day. But guess what? There were 600,000 Christians in 1949. There are over 100 million Christians in China today. So you see, it's like Tertullian said, the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he, what he actually said, that's a paraphrase, what he actually said, he was writing to the Roman authorities. He said, when you mow us down, more of us spring up. The blood of the Christians is the seed. That's what Tertullian actually said. And that, that was the case. And obviously that's been the case in China as well. John and Betty Stam. Then, of course, we could talk about Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, those other, the, the five, there were five in total. And you might be familiar with the story through Great Gates of Splendor is the great, you know, uh, volume on this. Um, but they went down, these five young men and their families, they went down to Ecuador uh, to, to reach this, uh, the Alcas. Now, the Alcas wasn't, that wasn't really the name of their tribe. They were given the name Alcas because of their fierceness. They were fierce killers. And so these guys, they have a burden. They, they want to reach this this tribal people with the gospel. So they go down and they, they, uh, uh, they try to make contact with them. They seem to have a friendly exchange. They think that it's, it's all going to be good. And in the end, they all get, they all get murdered, all five of them. And Again, this seems like, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. But guess what? As time goes on, as we follow the story, the entire tribe ends up coming to Christ. And probably 10 years ago on this very platform, one of the men who was instrumental and involved in the murder of these guys, he stood here and told us his story about how Jesus saved him and forgave him. It's amazing. 1956, January 8th, just, you know, we just had the 62nd year apparently of... uh, that um, event happening. And so that's another example where we see that 
um, you know, the seed is planted and, and in time, uh, the fruit comes forth. Those, uh, those 21 Egyptian Christians that were uh, murdered by, by ISIS, you know what that did? That has actually led many of the Middle Eastern Christians uh, to a personal relationship with Christ. Now, what we might not understand about the Middle Eastern Christianity is, is much of it has, was a nominal Christianity. It was a nominal Christianity, just like here in the United States, where you might say, you know, if somebody asks a person, are you a Christian? They say, oh, I'm a Protestant. What does that mean? Well, that means you're just a nominal, you know, you're connected to some religious organization, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Or, uh, well, you know, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm, or I'm a Methodist, or something like that. that. That's a nominal, it's like a cultural Christianity. Well, the Middle Eastern Christians were, were that, but their Christian histories went back over, you know, in some cases, 1,800 years. So they're a Christian culture. They're not an Islamic culture. They're not a Yazidi culture. They're a Christian culture. But as, as these people are dying for their faith, this has caused an awakening among them to where their Christianity is not cultural Christianity anymore. It's real Christianity. It's a real relationship with Jesus. And not only have the nominal Christians become biblical Christians, many Muslims and Yazidis as well have, have come to Christ through these horrific things. Now, these are horrific things, yes. But remember, God uses these things. November 25th, the headline in the Daily Mail, which is a London-based newspaper, other, The Guardian, other, others had a similar headline, but this one from the Daily Mail, this is what it read. This is 2017, this is a few months ago. It said, kidnapped British missionary shot dead after singing Amazing Grace to lift spirits of fellow captives. Ian Squire. Ian Squire was somebody that I knew. Uh, Ian was part of one of our churches in London. And he had a ministry, he and another fellow, they had a ministry where they go into African nations and they would take, uh, uh, they, they were ophthalmologists and optometrists. And so they would go into the African nations and they would take in glasses and they would go in and they would give eye exams and treatments and, you know, give, give glasses to people. They, they did this for many years and tens of thousands of uh, pairs of glasses they provided for people. Well, Ian was uh, on a bit of a fact-finding mission to Nigeria um, doing this kind of thing. And uh, on that particular trip, he was kidnapped along with three other missionaries. And out of the four of them, Ian was the one who was killed. And he literally was shot dead the moment he finished singing Amazing Grace to his fellow captives. Everybody was downcast. They were, you know, in kind of a enclosure type of a thing. They had a guitar. Ian picked it up. He joyfully sang Amazing Grace. And, and right at the very end of the song, gunfire cut him down. He died instantly right there. But a second part to the story 
is that back in the UK, this was huge news. This is a British citizen who is uh, shot down in Nigeria. So this is, this is being discussed in parliament. You know, political people are talking about it. This is all over the news. The journalists are talking about it. So my friend and pastor of one of our fellowships in London, because Ian was part of his church, he's called upon to, to give the, the, the memorial message at, at his uh, service, at his funeral. And so there Rob has the opportunity to preach the gospel that Ian believed to over 500 people, uh, several, several of them being people in the British government and, and journalists. Now, I, do, I don't know at this point, I can't tell you that there's some amazing conversion story that's come out of it, but what I can tell you is this, that God has certainly used Ian's death and that service and Rob's preaching to plant the seed of the gospel in the heart of people on that day. And you see, this is the reality of these kinds of things. It looks like a defeat, but it's not. It's part of the bigger plan that God has of advancing his kingdom. And sometimes it's advanced through the, the suffering and the sacrifice. I mean, it's always advanced through the sacrifice of God's people, but sometimes it is uh, the ultimate sacrifice like it was with Stephen. Now, in closing, the word martyr, it comes from the Greek word martis, and it, and it means simply witness. So it didn't originally mean uh, a person that dies for their convictions. It meant, in some cases, it meant a person who testified in a, in a courtroom. Uh, but the idea, the reason why, why people who died for their faith uh, started to be called martyrs was because they were dying for their witness. They were dying because they were testifying about Jesus and they were refusing to uh, comply with the authorities and to stop doing that. No, they, they were gonna witness, they were gonna testify. And even to the point of, if you kill us, we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're gonna keep preaching. So that's how the, the label came along. Now, here's the question. How was Stephen a witness even to the point of giving up his life for the gospel? And, and what I mean is, how is that possible? How does somebody do that? How can I or we be the kind of witnesses that whether in life or death, Christ is glorified and the gospel is advanced. Now, there, there's a, a high probability, I guess, that most of us, if not all of us, will probably never actually die as a result of our belief in Jesus. We, we won't be put to death. Now, I'm not ruling it out entirely, but you know, the probability is, is probably somewhat low, but things can change rather quickly in the world. And of course, this happens in a lot of places that people would never think that it would happen in. But, but the question is, you know, I mean, how, do, how, how could I be a person like that? I, I, I think if we're honest, most of us would say like, man, if that were to happen to me, I don't know if I could, 
I don't know if I could really stand up. I don't know if I could be bold enough. And that's understandable. That, that's a, like a, a very natural response. But how can we be the kind of witness that whether in life or death, Christ is glorified and the gospel is advanced? Well, I wanna take us back to what I said early on. Stephen, this is where it starts. Stephen was first and foremost a genuine Christian. You know, it all starts with that. And sometimes as simple as that is, we, that can get lost. I was talking to a guy after the service about something completely unrelated to this, but he was a person in ministry and he was no longer in ministry because of some problems in his life. And, you know, he was just having a hard time really coming to grips with it. And I said, I said, listen, just be a Christian. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be in the ministry. That's not your primary identity. Your primary identity is being a Christian, just a simple Christian. And like I pointed out, that's what Stephen was. Remember, look for seven men among you who are of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. So that's who Stephen was. He was a guy with a good reputation. Stephen was a guy who lived out his faith in his daily life. He was no doubt gracious. He was honest in his dealings. He was sincere. He was caring. He was kind, compassionate. He was a Christian. That's where it all starts. That's how to be a witness. Now, if that witness brings you to the point of uh, they're going to kill you for it, then We'll find out in just a second that there's another aspect to this. But, but Stephen was of good reputation. Stephen was full of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that was a part of Stephen's life because he was a sincere Christian. He was a man who took his Christianity seriously. That's where it starts. That's how we're gonna be a witness to Christ whether we live or die. But if we are called upon to die, Let's remember that in the story itself, remember what it says initially when Stephen opens his mouth to begin to speak, it says, and everybody looking at him, they saw that his face shone like the face of an angel. And the point is this, the spirit of God was upon Stephen. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.14 that that is the case. When we suffer for Christ's sake, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And that's what happened. And that's how we can have the confidence that even if it were to come to an extreme situation where we were called to give our life, that the Spirit of God will give us the grace that we need at that time. That's what we need to remember. And as horrible as the situation was with Stephen, remember that even there at the very end, it says, as they're stoning Stephen, Every time I read this, I think of getting hit by stones. I think, oh gosh, how brutal that is. And yet as they're stoning Stephen, what is he doing? It's almost like he's not even aware of it. He's looking up. He's seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father standing. And he says, Lord, Lord, it, it, you know, he's committed himself to the Lord. He's just caught up in this, this heavenly vision thing that's going on. And he even says, don't lay this charge against them. I mean, he's really echoing the very words of Jesus when he was being crucified. But you see, 
the, the spirit of God was upon him. F.F. F. Bruce, uh, a writer, uh, he said this. He said, an unexpectedly beautiful and peaceful description of so brutal a death. Yes, unexpectedly peaceful, unexpectedly beautiful, such a brutal death. But then there's this thing happening where God's hand is upon him. And you find that, not just with Stephen, but you find that that many times over, the, the hand of the Lord is there upon him. So be a genuine Christian. Live as a martyr, i.e., a witness for Christ. Live as a witness. Be genuine. Be sincere. If the time should ever come to lay down our lives for Christ's sake, remember the spirit of glory and of God will, will rest upon us. Now, like I said, I mean, you know, that might probably never happen, but you just never know. In the, the early 1800s, a man named David Jones, a young Welshman, he was he was given a call to take the gospel to Madagascar. And um, he went to Madagascar with his family and some others that had the same vision. And they, they met with some real hardship. His wife died, his child died, his, his colleague's wife and child died. And that, that was all very difficult. But they found a very warm reception from the, the people and particularly the king at the time. This is like in the 1820s, 30s. And uh, because the king was favorable, they had free course to, to preach the gospel and to teach people the Bible. And there, there was a great work of God's spirit taking place. But that king died. And the next person that came to power was a queen, and she absolutely hated Christians. She hated Christianity. And she set in motion a, a wholesale slaughter of the Christians. And I, I read this story years ago, but they, they were taking Christians and they were hurling them off cliffs to the, you know, jagged rocks below and their, you know, bodies being dashed and they were, you know, spearing them and torturing them and, you know, just all of these horrible things. And thank God, you know, she eventually died and that stopped and they were, you know, the gospel was able, able to resume. But my point is this, we look at this stuff and we think, oh yeah, that happened, man, that back 2,000 years ago, they used to do that, that was horrible. Or we're maybe a little more realistic and we go, man, that stuff is still happening, but, but you know, it's, it's happening over there. That's where they do that. I'm, I'm staying away from that place. But you know, it could come here. It can come anywhere. We don't know. But here's the thing. This is, this is something we, it just has to be a reality to us. This is the only way the gospel's gonna advance is if we're willing to suffer. Now, God will determine the level of suffering that you know, we need to engage in. We don't have to go look for it. I want the gospel to advance, so I'm gonna go try to find something I can suffer in. Don't, don't do that. You know, it'll come and it's time if it's coming and you don't have to search it out. But... Where is our head in all of this? Are we realizing that this is the case? As more and more in our culture, people say, don't talk about that, don't say that, we don't wanna hear that, you better be quiet. You know, just across our northern border, you know, the prime minister last week of Canada 
uh, basically publicly said, and this was with pro-life people, which is you know, a different situation in one sense, but it's connected. Most pro-life people are pro-life because of their beliefs, their religious beliefs. But he basically said, these people really have no place in our society. These people, they are holding back the vision that we have for society. That's just across the border. That, that's, in, that's in Canada. So that mentality is prevalent in our 21st century Western culture, and that could easily translate into, uh, you know, these people are not, uh, they're not really a, a, you know, a help to the progress. They're a hindrance to it. So we're going to deal with that. So what if that happens? Well, if we are, like Stephen, genuine Christians, if we're serious about our faith, then, you know, it is what it is, and we'll just deal with it by God's grace as it comes. And if it ever went far enough to where our lives were on the line, God will meet us there and give us the grace we need. That's what we need to know. But let's be the martyrs. Let's be the martyrs. Whether we live or die, let's be the witnesses for Christ in our day. Jesus, like, you know, John was praying earlier today. You know, the truth is, man, the only hope for anything is, is Jesus and the gospel, right? That's the only hope. There, there's no hope. You know, it's just, it's so, it's so far gone. There is just no way that anything is gonna change for the better unless the gospel permeates our culture once again. And that's only gonna happen if the gospel permeates people's lives. And that's only gonna happen if we're living it and telling people about it. So Lord, help us to take away from the story of Stephen and his giving of his life for the gospel. Help us to take away from this story, those things that are pertinent for us today. And, and Lord, I pray, help us to be first and foremost genuine Christians, people who are just, we are following you, Lord. And, and we thank you, Lord, that as we just live our lives for you, that that will translate into service. That will translate into prophetic ministry. That will translate into uh, evangelism. That'll translate into all these different things. But that's where we start. So help us, Lord. And Lord, I pray uh, for any today that are, are believers, but they would have to just say, you know, my, my, I'm not a witness. People aren't seeing Jesus in me. They're not seeing a difference in my life. Lord, I pray that you'd help them. Uh, to make the adjustments so that that is no longer the case, but Lord, that they might shine forth as a witness, Lord, that we might do that together. And Lord, I pray too, if there's any among us that have yet to come to receive the Savior, I pray that you would open their hearts. I pray, Lord, that they would know that um, it is appointed to every person to die at some time. And Lord, the only way to die is in Christ. And I pray that they would embrace your gift of salvation 
that they might be ready to die for you, but Lord, that they would also be ready to live for you. So work, help, touch, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.